Good morning. This morning's reading is Nehemiah chapter 9. So, Nehemiah chapter 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God, and the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethaniah, said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted among all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God. You chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his, of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians had treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through it on dry ground, but you held their pursuers into the depth, like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath, and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, 
even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your mana from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Shion, king of Hezbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who'd rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard them from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on, on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, and our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. 
our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thank you, Chris. Please do keep that passage open. Henry Ford was the founder of the Ford Motor Company. He was the father of the assembly line and of mass production, and one of the wealthiest and most famous people who've ever lived. However, history is bunk, is probably one of the two things that you can remember that he ever said. The other being, people can have the Model T in any color, so long as it's black. Did Henry Ford say, History is bunk. Well, more or less, yes. What he actually said about history was, history is more or less bunk. It's tradition. We don't want tradition. We want to live in the present. And the only history that's worth a tinker's blank is the history that we make today. History in the Bible is not regarded as bunk. History is very much seen as the outworking of God's purposes in the world. Here in Nehemiah 9, the people of Israel rehearse the story of, old, of the Old Testament and draw lessons from it. Then in chapter 10, they make a binding agreement binding themselves to serving God. I did a history degree. It was a great experience, a chance to read and think about some of the greatest events and issues the world has ever faced. It does us good to rehearse the events of history. And it does us particular good to rehearse the faithful acts of God in history. What we're going to see today is that history is his story. History is the story of God's unfolding plan. Therefore, secondly, we should love and serve God in the power of the Spirit. I say in the power of the Spirit because I don't want to teach you moralism. I'm not just saying do good things. As Christians, 
We're saved through the cross, not through good works. So, history is his story. The context of this chapter is that Nehemiah has been released from his service to the Persian emperor. He's returned to the land of Judah, which is the southern kingdom of the divided Israel. Nehemiah has successfully rebuilt the city walls, to some extent restoring the honour of God's name. He faces down great opposition. And then God sends a spiritual revival on the people in chapter 8. The word of God is restored to the community. God's word is read, taught and obeyed. And the people get right with God. Now we see a further development in chapter 9. They rehearse the story of God's dealings with them as a nation. History is his story. It's still the seventh month, verse 1. And the people of God, the Israelites, are gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. In other words, the people are demonstrating how sorry they are for their past sins. The people are repenting and getting right with God. They separate themselves from all foreigners, verse 2. This was not racism. God's word had much to say about loving people from other cultures. But the point here is that Israel had become involved in the worship of false foreign gods. And so they have to separate themselves from foreigners in order to get free of worshipping false foreign gods. The most famous example of this is King Solomon. Solomon was a good and wise king. He presided over the high point of Israel's status as an imperial power. But then he married many foreign wives and eventually he worshipped their gods. And because of this, the kingdom of Israel was torn in two into the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. So here are the people of God. Verse 2, they confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. This is a remarkable spiritual revival. They read from God's law, verse 3, for a quarter of the day. And they spend another quarter in confession and worship. The Levites are with Ezra and Nehemiah to support the revival by teaching the people from God's word. Stand up and praise the Lord your God, the Levites command in verse 5. So the people do just that. They worship God. In verses 5 and 6, they bless God's glorious name because he alone is the Lord, verse 6. 
Whenever you see the word Lord in capitals in the Old Testament, it's the covenant name for God. It's translated as Yahweh or Jehovah. Only those in covenant relationship with God were allowed to call God Lord in capitals. God shows that he alone is the Lord by creating the world. Nobody else made the world. Therefore, nobody else is God. Nobody else is to be worshipped. The multitudes of heaven worship God. And then the people rehearse the story of God's people's history. It begins with Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham. God called Abram out of his home in Ur of the Chaldeans. God called Abraham to live in the promised land of Israel. God found Abraham faithful. And therefore God made a covenant with Abraham that his many descendants would live in the promised land. But then, of course, God's people were taken as slaves into Egypt. Again, God was faithful. God made a name for himself in verse 10 and rescued the people from Egypt and led them through the wilderness back to the promised land. On the way, during Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land, God did marvelous things. He gave the people the law at Mount Sinai in verse 13. God gave the people manna, bread from heaven to eat. And God gave them water from the rock. But because the Israelites were faithless and fearful, they made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it, invoking God's just disapproval. But because of God's great compassion, he forgave the people and God provided for all their needs in the wilderness, so that their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell up as they constantly wandered. God gave the people great victories over their enemies in the promised land and made the Israelites as numerous as the stars in the sky. And therefore the Israelites were able to capture the land and take ownership of all the vineyards and olive groves and fruit trees. They ate to the full and were well nourished. But we see this repeated cycle. The people sin. They rebel against God. They kill the prophets. They commit awful blasphemies. And so God abandons them to their enemies. 
And then, when the people cry out to God in repentance and faith, God delivers them from their enemies. This pattern is repeated many times. But God does not destroy Israel. He loves them as his own. And so, verse 32, the people are bold enough to ask for deliverance once again. Their hope is that as in chapter 9, verse 31, God is a gracious and merciful God. And once again, God is delivering the people, this time, from the hand of the Persian Empire. History is his story. Therefore, secondly, we should love and serve God in the power of the Spirit. The people freely admit how unfaithful they've been to God. But they want to make one more attempt at living faithfully for God. They won't succeed. But it is at least a good thing that they want to at this point. And we can succeed only because Jesus has died for us and given us his spirit. Well, in verse 38 of chapter 9, in view of all this, they say, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And so into chapter 10, we get the names of all those who signed this binding agreement. This binding agreement between the people and God. The agreement that the people would be faithful to God. And we can see the names of those who signed the priests in verses 1 to 8, together with Nehemiah the governor, the Levites in verses 9 to 13, the leaders of the people in verses 14 to 27, the rest of the people signed up in verse 28 and following. Verse 29, they bind themselves with a curse and an oath. To follow the law of God and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations and decrees of the Lord our God. So if they disobey God, they are to be cursed. God already told them this in Deuteronomy 28. There would be curses for disobedience. And blessings for obedience. And the same is true for all of us today. We either stand in the place of God's blessing. Or we stand in the place of God's curse. If we're trusting in Jesus, if we love him. And we're following him. If we know we've been saved 
from hell for heaven. We can be certain that we stand in the place of God's blessing. Not that everything will go well for us, but rather that ultimately we will be blessed in heaven. If we do not belong to Jesus, if we have not made Jesus our king and our rescuer from hell for heaven, well, we're in the place of God's curse. Not that everything will go badly for us in this life. We may know much prosperity in this life. But ultimately, we're heading for hell. The whole of humanity is divided into those who are under God's blessing and those who are under God's curse. And the people of Israel understand, here in Nehemiah 10, that there are only those two possibilities, blessing or cursing. And so, because they want to know blessing, the people bind themselves on oath not to intermarry with pagans. Not that they were to be racist, but they're to understand that if they marry those who do not love God, they'll be influenced away from loving God. And it's the same today. If we marry unbelievers, it's decidedly difficult for us to live for Christ. Because our partner won't share our Christian priorities. So they promise not to intermarry with the godless. They promise to keep the Sabbath, both the weekly Sabbath and the seven yearly Sabbath for the whole land. When the whole land gets a rest from being worked and all debts are cancelled. In other words, they will trust God enough to take a day off once a week and a year off every seventh year. They're to trust that God will meet all their needs. They also promise to honour God with their finances, verse 32. They promise to give their money for the upkeep of the temple. They promise to give all that is needed to maintain the daily round of offerings and sacrifices in the temple, ultimately to make atonement for the sins of Israel. They will bring to God all the sacrifices stipulated in the law. Wood to keep the sacrificial fires burning. The first fruits of their crops were for God. The firstborn sons of the people and of the animals were to be consecrated, set apart for God and redeemed by sacrifice. And God was to have the first of the ground meal, 
the grain offerings, the fruit of the trees, the wine and the olive oil. They bound themselves to bring a tithe of their crops. We will not neglect the house of God, the people proclaim. Well, how does all this apply to us? History is God's story, his story. He is the sovereign God who is working out his plan for history. Therefore, we should love and serve God in the power of the Spirit. Do you have confidence that God is working out his plan, his story in, his, in history? We get an example of this in Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers, who sold him into slavery in Egypt, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Bad things happen in history, but God brings good out of it. This is our hope. This is our hope as we look at the war in Ukraine. We have a sovereign God who is working out events according to his plan. History is his story. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 8.28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So God does not bring good out of every situation for all people. But he does promise that he will work good for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Is that you this morning? Can you say you love God and that you've heard God's call on your life to serve him? If you can, then the history of your life is the history of God's unfolding plan for your life. As God says in Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. That's God's ultimate plan for the believer. In the outworking of history, bad things happen. But God works them for our ultimate good. That's to say, 
All will be worked out perfectly in heaven. Therefore, it makes perfect sense to conclude that we should love and serve God, just as the people do here. They make a binding agreement to serve the one true God. So we must commit our lives to loving and serving God. We've already seen today that every seven years, all slaves were to be set free. But if a slave loved his master and wanted to stay with him, he could ask his master to pierce his ear. And this ear piercing was a sign to the world that the slave was committed to his master forever. When I was a boy, we used to sing a song which said, Pierce my ear, O Lord my God. Take me to your door this day because the ear was pierced against the doorpost. I will serve no other God. Lord, I'm here to stay. For you have paid the price for me. With your blood you've ransomed me. I will serve you eternally. A free man I'll never be. I voluntarily want to be God's slave for the whole of my life. I believe God's plan is the best plan for my life. But you know what? When we commit ourselves to being God's slaves forevermore, God does not leave us as slaves. He makes us sons and daughters. He adopts us into his family. There's no greater privilege than being a child of the King of Kings. So, history is God's story, his story. Have confidence in the sovereign God who works all things for our good. Therefore, we should love and serve him in the power of the Spirit. Would you sign your name, so to speak, to the binding agreement that we will serve the Lord? But we know, of course, that the people of Israel ultimately failed in their binding agreement with God. And so we'll see again and again, it's good that we commit ourselves to serving God, as the Israelites do here, but even more wonderful that there is one who obeyed God perfectly, remained absolutely faithful to God, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We can rejoice that Jesus is the one who does make and keep his binding agreement to God. He is the only faithful Israelite 
and remained faithful to God, even though it took him to the cross. So he kept the covenant on our behalf. And now, because of him, our hearts are changed by the Spirit's work. That's the promise of Jeremiah 31. God puts his spirit in our hearts. He changes us on the inside. And the pattern of history is finally broken. Ultimately, we will find ourselves in heaven where we love and serve God perfectly for all eternity. Isn't that wonderful news? So, do you belong to Christ? Are you serving him in the power of the Spirit? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can look back and see your sovereign hand in history. Thank you that you worked out the history of Israel, ultimately to bring us Jesus. Thank you that he kept the binding agreement with you that we could never keep. Thank you that he obeyed you all the way to the cross, that we might be forgiven and given your spirit. Father, fill us afresh with your spirit, that we may love and serve you with all our strength and energy. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.